Welcome to the vaccination station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Taryn Chapman, the vaccine mum. Taryn, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Dave. I'm glad to be here. Let's start by getting to know you. Tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting. Well, you know, I'm kind of a nerd, but um, I, uh, I actually am a certified scuba instructor and I taught scuba diving for a while in college. Um, I haven't been diving for a while, though, just because I've been so darn busy. But um, I'm also a, uh, well, I was a competitive figure skater for most of my young life. So um, I suppose that's interesting. Now um, I'm a practicing Buddhist and I meditate every day. Well, all three of those are very interesting. So thank you very much. That's really great. Yeah. Next question. Where did you study and what are your qualifications? Well, Dave, I uh, went to grad school at USF and my graduate degree is in molecular medicine. Um, but I specialized in biochemistry and virology, and then eventually ended up, you know, kind of going off into immunology and then virology and vaccinology. So I started, well, I started out as a marine scientist and then kind of (laughs) changed my mind completely and went into um, medical science. So that's quite a swerve to start off in right. what, um, marine, marine biology, did you say? Marine biology, yes. And then to specialize in virology and immunology. Right. Completely what? changed my mind. <laughs> but that's so okay, how did that right? happen? Talk, talk me through it. Well, I, I did spend some time as a marine biologist, but I, I realized it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It's not all training dolphins and looking at fish. You know, it was going through mucky swamps and, um, you know, diving in murky waters. It just wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted for my life. And I realized, you know, I kind of got into these um, viruses. I started reading about viruses and I was so interested. So I thought I'm just going to go back to school and I'm going to, I'm going to go into medical science. And I loved every minute of it, a minute of it. So I am so glad that I did that. You have a second uh, trained marine biologist that I've interviewed actually, Dr. Anna Zacherson. <laughs> was also mm-hmm. a marine biologist to start off with. And then she eventually took a swerve into science communication and then broadened her, her horizons as a, as a consultant as well. And now I think she's, she's just started up her own company, which is pretty exciting. Oh, wow. You know, we all kind of romanticize marine biology and it's just, <laughs> it's not what you think it's going to be. I mean, it's great for some people and some people do end up training those dolphins, but you know, for most of us, we, I, I think a lot of us that, that I went to school with kind of switched tracks. So not telling anybody not to do that, but it, it wasn't for me. Well, from the public's perspective, 
uh, most of what we see of marine biologists are, are sort of what we see in in horror movies and sci-fi movies. So you know, marine biologists are always the crazy people discovering the the horrible undersea monsters that You're are right. trying to rise up and wipe the rest of us off the face of the planet. You're right. They're the <laughs> first saying. ones to get eaten by the sharks down there. <laughs> They're scuba gear. Yeah. So the, the average the average man on the street would be. A lot happier if marine biologists just right. simply stayed right. stayed on shore right. and messed about with algae or something. I think. <laughs> exactly. So, how did you first become interested in science as a career? You know, it all started at a young age for me. I think I was in the library pulling books on um, all kinds of you know animals and things, and I would just copy down facts and I think that's kind of where it got started and then I just can remember having really great teachers and I think teachers can really make you or break you and I know I had some really good teachers that I can remember to this day that really fostered my love of learning about science and I think I was just pushed in that right direction so I'm just really glad that I encountered these amazing teachers. <clears throat> Yeah, there's um, there's nothing like a, an inspirational teacher okay. to help encourage your passion and and guide you towards what they, I know, seemingly instinctively know is is the right, right path for you. Right, I agree. But what advice would you give to someone considering a career in science? You know, I would say, go for it. I think science can kind of be intimidating um, and maybe it is sometimes, but I think you just have to go with what you're naturally drawn to. And, you know, I think keeping an open mind is good. Like I said, I went from marine biology into medical science. And I think it's just because I thought I need to keep, I need to do something that I'm really passionate about. And then within that field, I, I kind of went into these smaller things like viruses and um, vaccinology. I think you just have to um, keep an open mind, you know, find what you're interested in and go for those little things that maybe you um, didn't think you'd be into before. So, you know, keep an open mind, go for it. It's not as intimidating as you think. I think we need a lot more good uh, scientists and mathematicians out there, um, people in the STEM field. So, you know, go for it. Tell me about your most recent research. I'm not, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what you've done in, in mm -hmm. the way of research, but mm -hmm. if, if you have done something recent, uh, let's hear about it. Sure. So my uh, most recent lab position um, I took was in a biomedical engineering lab, which um, engineers, man, they just talk over my head. They're, they're such different minded people, but we did, I had a lot of fun. Um, so what they were doing is working on new vaccine technology um, to help 
make the vaccines more effective. So help the immune system create a stronger response to the vaccine. So what I did is basically just came up with experiments and, and uh, ways to test these uh, vaccines to see if the body was making a stronger immune response. So I'm looking for more antibodies, better antibodies, different, you know, different things in the body that are, um, creating a stronger immune response. And we did have some good um, outcomes with some of the technologies. So I think they're still pursuing that, which, uh, which is good news. Was this for a private company or was it a publicly funded institution or what was yes. the, the, it was, it was there? through a university, but there was a little company involved in there too. So, um, but yeah, through a university uh, funded by grant money. On, on that note, and it's, um, it's a related issue, for all the angst about big pharma and, and the aggravation that people feel about big pharma doing this and big pharma doing that and mm -hmm. big pharma only ever producing studies that confirm what they want them to confirm, there seems to be um, a very, I don't know, just a considerable lack of knowledge or understanding about the fact that a huge amount of medical research, including vaccination research, is actually publicly funded and conducted by government-funded universities or, or private right. universities that receive funding from non-pharma sources. And it, it just surprises me that anti-vaxxers either don't know about this and also just the general public just doesn't seem to know or acknowledge mm -hmm. this because it's it's actually quite bigger than a lot of people think. Right. I'm going to say that I've worked in many labs, uh, like 90, at least 90% of our funding came from uh, grant money. And um, very little came from any of these, um, you know, big companies, pharmaceutical companies. I, we didn't get a lot of our funding from there. Yeah, it it always surprises me that this doesn't get enough or to my mind, doesn't right. get enough airtime because it's, it's a really important distinction to, to help create in the minds of people who view the whole big pharma industry as, you know, corrupt and, and untrustworthy. Exactly. And they're not, you know, they're not coming in and telling us, you need, you need to come up with these results for this drug. You know, we want to see this. It's not like that. You know, we're in there working. We're working on our, you know, our own ideas, coming up with our own hypothesis and testing our own. Um, you know, all of our research is, um, you know, everything that we report is based on our findings. It's not it's not funded and, and we're not influenced by big pharma. I mean, we're not. And this provides an excellent firewall against corruption, really, because the, the independent research conducted by universities, etc., is just part of the system of checks and balances that helps to keep big pharma honest, or at least to some extent in, you know, under, under control because Big Pharma can't get away with stuff when there are so many independent institutions researching the same kind of stuff and double checking their results. Right. And you mentioned double checking. I mean, all of these are peer reviewed. Uh, other labs try to reproduce our results. I mean, these aren't things that we're falsifying. It's, you know, everything is, is checked and checked and checked before anything is, you know, remotely said to be uh, true. I mean, we can never really say true, but you know, 
nothing is is out there unless it's been checked and peer reviewed. So, um, you know, this data is pretty trustworthy, in my opinion. Yeah, the bottom line is that good science is reproducible. Right. And the study cannot be re reproduced no matter how many times different people try it. Then you know that something is either wrong with the methods, the interpretation, the conclusion, okay. something has gone wrong in the process somewhere. And of course, we saw that with, for example, Andrew Wakefield and, and his poultry study of, of 12 carefully selected children to produce the results he wanted. No one has reproduced that study. And even Wakefield, when he was given the opportunity to reproduce it with full funding provided by his own employer, refused because he knew now that the spotlight was on him and it was going to be impossible to get away with it a second time. Exactly. Yeah. And you're not hearing that. I mean, you're not hearing these big labs, this person's license was revoked, these papers were retracted like this. Um, that was a huge falsified uh, uh, journal that he journal article that he wrote. So but it did it did have so much it, it created so much damage in the vaccine community. And you know, once you put that stuff out there, you can't really take it back. So that's why we check and check and check over again, to make sure that this data is correct before it's ever put out. So, and that's how it should be. So how did you get into science communication? Well, it's kind of a long story. Um, so after I had my daughter, my first child, uh, she was a preemie, it was a hard time. So I ended up staying home for a couple of months from the lab. And then I got to this place because I'm so passionate about science that I felt like I needed to go back. I had to get I had to get out of that house and go back. And I think a lot of us feel that way as, um, you know, new moms. Um, but so I did try to go back. I went back at nights. I was so tired. I, you know, I couldn't even focus. So I thought, I just, I'm going to just stay home. I'm going to just tell them I'm I'll, you know, I'll come back eventually, but right now it's not the best time. So then what I did is because I just needed this um, maybe camaraderie or whatever with other mothers, I joined one of those mom's groups and I'm not the person to join a mom's group. <laughs> I'm just not, I'm just not. So I did, something told me to do that. I sat down with these moms and we all start talking about what we did for a living and you know, that kind of thing. And then once they, they learned that I worked in vaccines. Oh my gosh, questions, questions coming in. I had no idea. I was, you know, as a vaccine researcher, I knew the anti-vaccine community was out there, but I had no idea that new parents were really concerned about vaccines. Even if they said, you know, I'm going to vaccinate my kid, but I need to know, is this okay? And so when we got to talking, I said, there are so many questions. I'm going to put these questions and answers up in a place where I can um, say, hey, go here. I have an article, you know, go here. So I created the vaccine mom. I started putting all of this information up there. It's been almost eight years now since, since then. Um, so I've collected a lot of stuff and I can, you know, I can refer people to those uh, easy to read, easy to understand um, answers to these questions um, so that, you know, I'm not sitting there explaining all the time. And 
I think that has been that that mom's group was the catalyst to all of this, you know, just in talking to parents and knowing what parents need to know. So, um, well, that's where it started. And then from there, I've, I've, I've had so many really great opportunities and, and I'm so glad because I feel like I've gotten to educate a lot of parents. So that's where it all started. Mom's group. That's, uh, that's not entirely surprising, um, but it's a really great story and it, it goes to show how much difference one person can make when they just, you know, have an opportunity to share their knowledge in, in the right place and at the right time. Right. And that's really what, what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. You have to use what you know to help other people. And I think this is exactly where I need to be. Which brings me to the question, how has social media affected the way that you communicate your knowledge and ideas? Oh my goodness. Social media is such a blessing and a curse at the same time as you, you know, you know, it's a, it's a great way to communicate. Also, it can be really frustrating and, you know, aggravating because of this, the, some of the things that angry people have to say. But um, so I, I do want to tell this story. I um, so I was on social media for some time, several years, and I was I was run off social media because of some pretty extreme threats. And I thought, you know what, I don't get paid to do the vaccine, mom. This is so detrimental. Um, they were coming after my children and putting information out online, and I thought. I'm going to take myself off social media. And I did that for several years. I was off social media for several years. And recently I came back and I thought I have something to say. There's something here I have to say, and I'm going to do that. And I started back at social media. I um, started creating graphics like you do and trying to find creative ways to reach people. And once I realized that, you know, there are angry people out there, they just want to say what they want to say. That's okay. I'm not going to take that personally. I'm just going to, you know, let it happen and move on. And, you know, I think they, they just, they've gone away because they're not getting what they want. And so I've learned, you know, I, all I can do is connect on common ground, connect with parents, find a way to help them if I can, sit down, carve out time, if I can help somebody answer a few questions. I've had so many people tell me, you know, I, I want to vaccinate my kids. I need to know these answers. And I'll sit down and I'll help answer those questions. And I've had people say, many people say, well, now I'm going to, I'm going to get my kids vaccinated. I feel comfortable doing that now. And, and that's what it's all about. I think it's social media is such a great way to connect with people, other parents, tell your story. You know, it can be a really, really good tool. Social media is, as, as you say, it's a real blessing and a curse because it provides mm -hmm. a level playing field for everybody. And the problem right. with that is that people start to assume that everyone's ideas have the same merit. And that's just, that's just not true. It, it's really not true. And people love to use the expression or the, or the phrase, I'm entitled to my opinion. I'm entitled to my opinion. Uh -huh. well, yeah, um, 
as I, and I, someone famous said this, and for the life of me, I can't remember who it was, but someone famous and reasonably intelligent said, yes, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. Right. That's You've got to deal true. with the facts, the same facts that mm-hmm. everyone else is dealing with. You can't make up facts to suit yourself. You can't ignore facts to suit yourself. You are welcome to your own conclusions, but you still have to defend them. You have to still have to explain how and why they have merit. And it's Correct. not enough to sort of sit back and say, oh, that's my opinion. Well, why is it your opinion? Why do you think your opinion is, is valid? Where is the evidence to support your opinion? How did you arrive at this opinion? People right. don't want to think that far because it is too much work. And, you know, they, they don't, some of them just don't want the, the conflict. And, and some of them just have closed minds and, and others genuinely haven't even thought that far ahead. Right. And I think with social media too, it's so easy to go down that rabbit hole and it's so easy to reach vulnerable people when it comes to these anti, you know, vaccine groups, you know, parents that have lost children or, you know, they target those people because they're vulnerable. And, and then those people, you know, confirm these, these beliefs by going down these rabbit holes. And it's, it's so easy. And I can understand where it's so easy to, to get in this cycle of this, um, you, know, you know, this misinformation and looking for information in order to be, you know, correct so that you're, you're finding my beliefs are correct. Well, they're, they're not correct. You know, you're not valuing being accurate and accepting facts as facts which is what I think if people start going in that direction as wanting to be accurate, we're going to see real big change in all of this. But as of right now, and you, and you know what, recently within the last several days, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter have been removing um, anti-vaccine groups, which I think is great. Have you seen, have you seen this news come out? Oh yeah, I I have, and I've seen right. a huge outcry, of course, from the from the anti-vax community, as as you'd expect. They're all tying themselves into knots, trying to figure out how they can, you know, get around the rules right. and this kind of right. Thing. Yeah. Well, they're not taking down some of the the posts that they're putting up, but they're they're trying to eliminate the groups and, and misinformation, which I think is great, and that's kind of, you know. Is that not a wake up call to some people, you know, that this isn't correct information that needs to be removed, you know, so can you look for the correct information? And I think maybe we're moving in that direction and we'll see what's going to happen with this pandemic and the vaccine, because that could really play a role in mistrust in vaccines. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Hopefully not, but, um, but, you know, that's going to play a role in, in whether or not there's going to be more mistrust here. And at least they're trying to keep a little bit of it off social media, which I think is great. The problem, of course, with social media platforms tightening their terms of service to mm-hmm. exclude certain types of propaganda is that it feeds into the defensive conspiracy mentality that many of these people have so they assume well the fact that i'm being censored in this way only goes to prove that the information i'm trying to convey is dangerous to the powers that be or you know various people 
believe it must be suppressed. Therefore, I must be right and they must be wrong. And of course, the, the logical gaps in, in that thought process are very easy to spot. By the same token, people don't think very logically when it comes to this sort of thing. They, they go by their feelings and they don't stop to think, well, Facebook is also banning anti-vax advertising, which mm-hmm. hurts their bottom line. Um, you know, what what Facebook is doing here is literally costing them money. And they don't think, well, why would, why would Facebook do that if they didn't feel very seriously about this issue and, and believe that what they're actually doing is, is correct? Exactly. It's just not, it's just another continuation of just this not logical way of thinking. And, you know, there's just, there's, this is just going to, there's still going to be a lot of naysayers out there, but hopefully people will start to realize that there's a reason why they're doing this. And maybe they need to start looking in a different direction. You know, let's start looking at the facts. And I think that's where we're heading. The bottom line is that by having them removed, it at least helps to clean up Facebook a bit. Right. And, and that can only be a good thing in the long term. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So I understand you're involved with a number of Provax advocacy groups. What can you tell me about them? Well, so I am a staff writer at IAC Immunization Action Coalition, uh, which is a nonprofit organization. It's been around for 30 years, and it's um, headed by Dr. Deborah Wexler. Um, she's great. We, um, we love her. <laughs> she's, um, so, so what we do is we put out information about vaccines, child, teen, adult vaccine information for professionals, providers, but also for parents and for um, patients. So there's all, we have really great handouts. They're used in doctor's offices, clinics, all, all over the country. Um, and you know what? They may be found all over the world. They're, they're great resources. We also put out a newsletter every single week. It's called IEC Express. And that's a great way, um, especially for clinicians, scientists, um, nurses, uh, people in vaccine organizations and um, coalitions to get uh, information every week. So we put out all kinds of things from the CDC, FDA, um, new recommendations, all of the handouts that that have been updated, the news, um, great way to reach people. And I write those um, just about every other week. I also work for Vaccinate Your Family. I do some writing for them. And I have a monthly video segment on their blog called Shot of Prevention. They're also a nonprofit organization. They reach kind of a, a different audience. Um, they, they reach clinicians and things but they also really cater to parents and telling stories and um, connecting, you know, with patients and parents um, to spread information that, um, you know, we need to reduce the burden of vaccine preventable diseases. That's really terrific. That's important for people to understand the huge amount of work that's being done by these nonprofits uh, that are often run on an absolute shoestring budget and, and yet they're doing such tremendous work and really getting the message out there to the right people at, you know, f- for no monetary benefit whatsoever, which is really impressive. Mm-hmm. This is so important. And, and yeah, we reach a lot of people, which is great. So um, I'm, I'm so happy to get to work for these places. I think they're, they're such great organizations. 
Imagine someone comes to you and says they're pro-vax and they want to become a vaccine advocate. They, they want to help in some way, but they don't really know how they could help because they don't have any background in medicine or science. And they have no relevant qualifications. How would you advise them? What, what could you say to them or talk to them, tell them about getting involved with Provax advocacy? This is such a cool question. And I, it's so funny. I had never been asked this question before, except within the last several weeks, I've given a couple interviews and this has been one of the top questions. So, um, I, I think this is great. So, you know, a lot of people vaccinate their kids, right? But they don't go a step further. They don't, uh, put that out on their, they could put that out on their social media super easily. What they need to do is tell their story. So we have this huge group of emotionally driven naysayers out there, right? And they're so good at what they do. They're really good. They're, they're awesome storytellers. I mean, I'm not going to lie. They're great. And, and we as advocates don't do that. I mean, sometimes, but we don't do that. And we don't have these I mean, there are some out there, but we're not putting out these emotionally charged stories that, you know, people want to, to follow and they want to vaccinate their kids after reading them. And I think what, what people can do is put out their stories and whether it's I vaccinate my kids, you know, because I want to protect grandma or I want to protect my community or I, I, you know, I don't want my kid to get this disease or my child has cancer. People need to vaccinate around him because he cannot get vaccines, whatever it may be. Everybody has a story. And I think it's just, it, it's connecting with people. And, you know, I think coming out as an advocate is scary. And I think for in any aspect of it, being an advocate and any, any, any topic is scary because, you know, there's going to be people that, that want to combat your, your opinion. And I think people have this huge fear of being opposed. And, you know, I think you have to realize that not everybody's going to like you, you know, and that's just life. And the amount of people that are going to, you know, say something about, you know, your, your post about your child are so few. And I think, you know, you got to do this. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised that most people will support you, which is then in turn what motivating. And then you, what you need to do is surround yourself with those like-minded people. So find groups of people, you know, maybe, maybe get rid of people that are naysayers and just keep telling your story. I think it is, as long as you're connecting with people, telling your story, you know, maybe spreading some good information, that's what you can do to advocate. I mean, start out small. And if you feel the need to then make this your life's mission, like some of us have, like, like I have, then, then make it bigger. But, but even without a science background, you can, you can tell your story. And I think that's the best thing that you can do because that's what these anti-vaccine uh, people in the anti-vaccine community are doing and they're doing it really well. So let's just do better. <laughs> you know, let's do better. I, and, I and totally agree with you because mm -hmm. the science, the facts, they're dry. They're not exciting. You're right. You know, there's nothing wildly stimulating about them. 
they will be intriguing and fascinating and exciting to the right kind of person. But the average person is interested, as you say, in stories. And they're primarily motivated, especially if they're on the fence or, or they're anti-vax, they're primarily motivated by emotions or by emotional concerns or doubts or worries. And they're not looking for a dry scientific argument. They're looking for reassurance and they're looking for stories that speak to them, stories that they can relate to. And when someone comes along and says, this is my horror story about my child mm -hmm. who was vaccinated mm -hmm. with 19 vaccines at two weeks old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, before those vaccines, uh, she was a gifted flautist and now she'll never get into the symphony orchestra. This kind of thing hits really hard, no matter how believable it, it may be to people with a, low, a little less credulity and, and a little more science behind them. But even that aside, it's really about speaking directly to people and meeting them where they are rather than saying, well, before you, you want to discuss this with me, you need a, a brief primer on immunology and some basic facts about how viruses work. And, and, you know, so I'll give you that. And then, and then we'll, we'll talk about how adjuvants operate and this kind of thing. You, you don't do that. You meet people where they are and you speak to them in a language that they understand and you seek, seek for a way to make your communication relatable. Right. And you know what? And that's, I, and like you said, that dry stuff, it's, it's, you scroll through, you're on your Instagram feed and you're scrolling through and I skip right by all that stuff. You know, it's like you said, it's dry, it's, it's boring. And if somebody has made up their mind that they're not vaccinated, they're not reading that. They don't care. You know, it, it's not, and, and I'm not saying it's not good stuff, but it's not changing minds. And what changes minds is when you stop and you see a picture of a smiling baby and you stop and you read that person's um, caption or, or post, that's what, and you know what, I'll stop and I'll read an anti-vaccine post just, you know, just to see. And I think that's, it, it's, it's so easy to stop and read that anti-vaccine post and go, wait, wait, that could happen to my baby. You know, we need to do better. I, we need to come up, you know, we need to have better, we have true stories, better stories. And I think that's what gets people to stop and look. So the irony of, of course, is that we don't tell our stories because uh, we sort of subconsciously think, well, there's nothing to tell. Nothing exciting happened. Right? Nothing weird happened. You know, right. my child got vaccine and uh, she's now immune to measles and nothing happened because, you know, it's, you didn't expect anything to happen because that's you know how it goes when the vaccine works and uh yeah what is there to talk about right because they're not going to get disease right there is no story there but there is a story there and you have to pull it out what is your story does your grandma have you know this and that my daughter can protect her from the measles my daughter's not going to get chicken pox and you know she's not going to my grandma's not going to be re-exposed and you have shingles or whatever it may be you know, find a way to pull a story out, a true story. Your story's true if you're vaccinating your kids, right? So pull your story out. And, and, and that's how you start uh, connecting with people. You got, you know, there's, there's, there's fear in any decision that you're making, right? 
it's it's emotionally driven fear-based decision to vaccinate you either vaccinate because you're afraid of the disease or you vaccinate be, or you don't vaccinate because you're afraid of the vaccine right we want to show people they need to be afraid of the disease not the vaccine and so put your story out what's what are you why are you vaccinating your kid to protect them against this against this disease did your dad have polio you know let's tell the story that's what we want to hear that's what we stop to look at a picture of and and you know that's that's how we can really reach people i think what a lot of people miss is that nothing happened to my child when she had a vaccine it's actually a story and it's a story to tell right you're right because the the corollaries is the anti-vax story which was this that and the other happened to my child when they had a vaccine Mm -hmm. well the counter story to that is that nothing happened and everything went right and everything worked and the the irony is there are so many millions of these stories that could be told billions even because vaccines are so plentiful and so frequent and so successfully used around the world over the past one, two, three hundred years or so. Right, that you feel that like really, not a there story are all these, there, but there is. <laughs> every successfully <laughs> vaccinated child is one of those stories, and there you're are right. just millions of them. You're right, you're right. And so we need to, you know, we need to pull that story out, do a little, do a little research. Why did your kid not get, is your kid okay? Because this vaccine is perfectly safe. So, you know, that's what you can start to do. There is an excellent foundation here in Australia called A Light for Riley. I don't know if you've heard of I it before. I have. Yeah, I've been following for a very long time. And I've, um, I've talked with um, Riley's mom. And I'm not coming up with her name right now for some reason. Do you have it? Um, offhand, yeah. no, uh, it was, which is ironic because that's a couple I, I would really like to interview. Right. But for, for the benefit of the audience, you may not have heard of them. A Light for Riley is a foundation set up by the parents of a child who caught and died from pertussis. And I believe he picked it up from an unvaccinated child. Correct. I think that's correct. I, I'm pretty sure he picked it up from an, an unvaccinated child. I um, Possibly a at a, at a childcare center or, or a social mm. gathering. And they have a heartbreaking story that they have been very frank and courageous and open about where they documented Riley's decline and right. his, his eventual death. And that is just utterly, utterly brutal to read. And yet every single word of it is true. And it's an incredibly okay. powerful story and right. it's one of the best provax stories you could you could hope to find because it tells you exactly what happens when a child catches this disease and intervention is insufficient to save the child and that of course is why we vaccinate you know i i wish more of these stories were you know more out there than some of these anti vaccine stories because like you said they're really powerful but but i feel like these these stories are kind of getting overshadowed by these anti-vaccine stories anyway that was a really that's a really powerful story and we do have several really powerful stories and um, women that have women and men who have created um these organizations to to put these stories out there 
um, you know, who have had children who have died from some of these vaccine preventable diseases. So those are really powerful ways to reach people. I think, you know, those are stories that need to be told. I think a lot of parents too don't want to come out and tell these stories, not only for fear of backlash in which they do get, but there it's hard to relive some of these, um, you know, really, really sad things that have happened. I wish more people would come out and, and, and tell their story. I know that's really hard, but this is really something that can help, you know, get a lot more kids vaccinated and save lives. Let's move on to yeah. some vaccine science related questions. I want to talk about viruses and bacteria because some diseases obviously are caused by viruses. Some diseases are caused by bacteria. What's the difference between viruses and bacteria? And does this have any bearing on our ability to develop vaccines against them? All right. Well, uh, so basic science here. Uh, bacteria are single-celled living organisms. They're both good and bad, right? So we have good bacteria in our bodies all the time that, that helps our bodies function and, you know, properly. We have bad bacteria, which is what, you know, infects us, which we need antibiotics for, right? So viruses are completely different. It's been debated, are they living, non-living? They don't really have the characteristics of something that we call living. Basically, a virus is just a, a, a protein capsule with some DNA or RNA genetic material, material inside. So a virus, the bacteria can live on its own, right? But a virus needs a host in order to replicate. So when you get infected with a virus, it goes into your cells, you know, go into a cell, it uses your cell's own machinery to replicate. So it's going to start replicating, replicating, making copies, making copies. That is how we get sick. So our body then has to learn to fight that virus off. Similarly with bacteria, our, the body has to learn to fight the bacteria off. So with a vaccine, what we do is we introduce either, you know, killed um, virus or a weakened virus or part of a virus or part of a bacteria or a bacteria toxin um, that has been detoxified to show the body that, that um, this is what it looks like. And then the body will come in and make an immune response to what that looks like, to the germ, and it will remember it. So, I mean, that's how we would make a, a, a vaccine is just introducing a little, a little bit or a weakened piece of this or weakened part, I'm sorry, a weakened whole virus or piece or part of this germ and showing it and making a memory. And I mean, that's, that's how we make the vaccine. That's it in a nutshell. But um, I think this is, a, this is a really great way to make uh, a memory and not get sick. I understand then that there are uh, physiological and, and molecular differences between bacteria and, and virus. So they're different, a different kind of, of thing. And as you say, there's some ongoing questions about the extent to okay. which viruses can be classified as, as living organisms. 
But what if someone comes to you and says, well, we use antibiotics against bacteria and, and they're, we have many of them and they're pretty wide ranging and some of them will, will actually deal with a huge number of different bacteria, even though some bacteria, yes, if you overuse antibiotics, they do develop as resistance and that makes it tougher to deal with them. Why can't we produce a vaccine that does the same sort of thing with a huge range of viruses? Well, I mean, antibiotics, when you talk about antibiotics, that's, that comes in and targets a specific part of a bacteria. Um, so, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll come in and, and say maybe the, a lipid on the outside will attach to it and say, this is what it looks like. let's kill it. You know, it's attached where this is what that's for. Well, with a virus, we don't have that. What we have is a protein um, capsule. So, you know, we would have to, you have to make something that's going to go and recognize that protein capsule. Antibody, antibiotics don't work on viruses. And that's number one, because people always ask me that all the time. Do antibiotics? No, they do not. So, I mean, vaccines are made in a similar way to where they have to recognize a, um, a part or a protein or a you know, a lipid, whatever it is, a, a toxin, that they have to be able to um, show that to the body. So they do work in a similar way. But we don't have, say, for example, a vaccine that combats, uh, say, you know, half a dozen to a, a dozen different viruses, whereas antibiotics we could have one set of antibiotics like penicillin that seems to be effective against a vast array of of bacteria we do have some multiple multiple vaccines today now that are, that will deal with say two or three different viruses but what is it about the physiology of the virus that makes it more complex and more difficult to deal with First, what I'm asking is, why do we need such highly specialized uh, medication to protect against vaccines when antibiotics seem to be just a good old general carpet bombing method that just works for almost everything? Right, we do have different antibiotics, but it, it, they recognize um, same or similar things on, on similar bacteria. So that's why they you know, work for uh, more of a variety of different kinds of bacteria. With a virus, they look, they all look different. So, um, and there's different strains, which means they kind of look different. Like the flu vaccine, for example. So you have uh, proteins on the outside. Every year, they change just a little bit. So they look different. We call those different strains. So the, the vaccine needs to have those proteins that are different every year so that the body can recognize those specific proteins. So, so because viruses are all different, we have, we have to show the body how they look, if that makes sense, how they look different, how their proteins look different in order to recognize it. So that's why we can't just make one vaccine and say like, this is what, um, polio looks like and this is what you know it, does this work for polio and does this work for uh measles no it doesn't because they, their protein shells are different and the body can't recognize 
them as similar. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So at okay. the risk of oversimplifying, if, if I can make an attempt right. at, at summarizing this, we can use antibiotics against a broad range of bacteria because they are sort of, well, I hesitate to use the word um, homogenous, but to some extent they're a more homogenous group that they have more similarities. Mm -hmm. And the same stuff simply works on on these things because of the, the fact that they are pretty much have uh, enough similarities for the antibiotic to be effective. Whereas the sheer variability of viruses makes it much more difficult. We do need very specialized individual uh, antigens to to combat them and because some viruses are highly mutable they change very frequently they they change uh, significantly so if the flu virus for example mutates every year and develops just enough of a different form to stay ahead of the curve so it's like a a, a self-preservation method it's constantly evolving to stay ahead of the game oh yeah they're real smart <laughs> So for this reason, we need to be constantly updating certain vaccines to make sure that we are also ahead of, of where the virus is trying to get to. Right, right. And they're great at, you know, evading. Some viruses don't change like that. Um, and that's why some of our vaccines are really good. You know, the, the virus isn't changing. But then like the flu vaccine, that's why we're, we have to do that every year because that's changing. Our body needs to see a different antigen every year or several, we have four, you know, in these flu vaccines. So, you know, we're showing the body several different antigens every year when it comes to the flu vaccine, um, which also your body, if it's seen this, this different antigen, sometimes it will have some protection against one that's similar. So that is why we get the flu vaccine. Not only does it protect you against those four, but it can protect you against a similar strain. So, you know, that's, that's a little bit different than some of the vaccines that we have that just display this one antigen, and, you know, the measles, that protects us against the measles and that's it. So bacteria then being, shall we say, far more similar in, in their makeup are more easily recognized with a, a, a more general um, a more general medication like an antibiotic, whereas the viruses being far more varied and very good at changing their, their shape and, and their uh, potency to, uh, seasonally sometimes, they must be more, more specifically combated because the variations between them are so great. Correct. Yep. Let's look at vaccine ingredients just briefly because this is obviously an old anti-vax trope that vaccine ingredients are all horrible and yucky and they shouldn't be in our system they don't belong in the human body and they'll do horrible things to us if they get there just for the sake of my argument can you list three vaccine ingredients and explain their purpose yeah everything in mod moderation right <laughs> things in large quantities are, are oftentimes not good for you right i mean well most of the time but in very very small quantities it's not a bad thing 
So I have three videos up on shadow prevention um, that explain three um, major vaccine ingredients that people are often, you know, having problems with, I guess. Um, and that's aluminum, formaldehyde, and thimerosal. So aluminum is something that we use in a vaccine to help the body make a stronger immune response. Uh, these are great so that your, your body doesn't uh, need as many doses or boosters of that vaccine in order to be effective. So we've had aluminum in our vaccine since the 1930s. So we have really good safety data on this. So we know that it's safe, it's effective. The other thing about aluminum is it's everywhere. So we're drinking it in our water. We are eating it. We're touching it. We're putting it on our bodies and in products that we use. So we have aluminum in our bodies uh, pretty much all the time. So when we, we get aluminum in the vaccine, our bodies are like, we know what this is. It's no big deal. It's in such a trace amount that it's really not doing anything. So we don't, we're not worried about aluminum salts in vaccines at all. We have formaldehyde, which is something that we use to inactivate the viruses or detoxify the bacterial toxin in vaccines. The thing about, or about uh, formaldehyde is it's something that's naturally in our body and our body actually needs it. So we need it for um, things, processes that we, um, you know, in DNA uh, replication and in our metabolism. So if we don't get it from our outside environment, which we do get in, you know, fruits and things, foods that we eat, sometimes we're breathing it in, uh, if we don't get it, our body has to make it. And the thing about that is, is, you know, whether we get it in a vaccine in this very, very trace amount, or we get it in an apple, or our body's making it, it's all the same. Our body doesn't know the difference between this formaldehyde and this formaldehyde. It's all the same. So our, our body is actually using formaldehyde if it's found in, in very trace amounts in vaccines. Um, and then we have thimerosal, which contains mercury. And this has been the big one because this um, used to be found in the MMR vaccine, which is, you know, they use this mercury in vaccines causes autism thing, right? The, the thimerosal and mercury was used or is used in some vaccines. Here's the deal. It's not used in our childhood vaccines in America. It's used in some vaccines that are in multi-dose vials. That means, you know, that uh, when you would stick a, a needle in one vial, put it back in the, the fridge, stick a needle in that same vial again, put it back in the fridge. Sometimes we would get fungal or bacterial growth in those vials. Back in the day, that was killing kids. So they had to put something in there to combat that and they put thimerosal in, just mercury. Thing about thimerosal is it's a different kind of mercury than we associate as the bad kind of mercury you know, that's in fish and things. Um, it's, it's a different form. It looks different. The body can eliminate it much quicker. It, it doesn't, I mean, it's not hurting the body in these high quantities like in um, mercury that would be found in fish. Of course, everything in, in big quantities, like I said, can be harmful. Um, but any super small amounts not found to be harmful. We have awesome safety data. This stuff has been around for decades. Um, 
what aluminum for almost a century now. Um, we know it's safe. We need it in the vaccines. It's, it helps our vaccines be more effective or to be safer. So that's why they're in there. These things are not harming your kids. Thanks very much for that. That was a really nice, detailed, and yet easily comprehended explanation. And I like the point that you made about all things in moderation. That's the, the dosage of something that actually makes it potentially dangerous or, or potentially beneficial. And I think it was uh, the medieval physician, Paracelsus, who actually came up with that maxim. I can't remember how, how he originally phrased it, but the, the paraphrase that's come down to us is, the dose makes the poison. He was the, the first to determine that anything can potentially be lethal in the right dose. And even some things that we might believe to be lethal can actually be harmless, provided the dose is sufficiently small. And that is a brilliant foundation principle, not only of vaccination, but also of, of medicine in general. And it explains how we can have substances that we would normally consider harmful, such as formaldehyde, naturally produced by our own bodies, carried in our blood, without any harmful effects whatsoever. Exactly. And all things, right? <laughs> Candies, carbs, the sun. I mean, it's all things in moderation. So you're correct. You know, it's the dose makes the poison. And what's found in vaccines is in such trace amounts that, that it's found safe. All of our data says safe. It's nothing you have to worry about. So let's move on to some anti-vax arguments. Anti-vaxxers are fond of saying that we don't need a vaccine for measles because it's a relatively harmless disease with a very low death rate, whereas the MMR vaccine is much more dangerous due to its association with autism and what they claim are frequently lethal side effects. What's your answer to that? Well, you know what? First of all, measles is a highly contagious, potentially deadly vaccine-preventable disease. We know that, right? Um, this is something that can have lifelong consequences, especially in kids under five. So one thing that came out is that measles can suppress the immune system for months to a year to where you're going to end up getting many other, you know, diseases in that time. So there, the chances of being sick within that time are really likely. So not only are you getting the measles, you are, you are potentially getting other diseases. Um, when you get that MMR vaccine, this thing is 90% or 97% effective with two doses against the measles. This is really good. You know, I think the thing about vac the, the falsified data by Andrew Wakefield, and you brought him up in the 90s, you know, that, that put into people's minds that there's a link between MMR and autism. And like we've already discussed, you know, that paper was retracted. Um, he's found guilty of serious professional misconduct you know, he, they took away his license, but this changed everything forever. You know, and it, it, 
all of this information has come out saying that you, this research is not reproducible. But, you know, I think now it's really hard to take back. And it's just something that the anti-vaccine community is really clung to. Um, you know, so it's, the thing about it is the vaccine's much safer than the measles. It has decades of safety data. It's effective. Getting your kids the vaccine is better than leaving them open to getting this potentially deadly disease. That's a, a really great answer. And, I, and of course, when anti-vaxxers say to me, well, measles hardly ever kills anyone these days. <laughs> the obvious answer to that is, yeah, because we vaccinate against exactly. it. And, exactly. and, and before the vaccine, <laughs> kids, kids were absolutely devastated by measles. And yes, the death rate began to fall a little bit before the the vaccine was introduced, but it plateaued and we didn't really see significant changes after that until the vaccine came in to push it even lower. And across the world, in places where children haven't been vaccinated against measles, we are still seeing many, many deaths. So when people say, oh, it doesn't kill many people, what they really mean is where I live, typically an affluent Western country, I haven't seen any measles deaths. Well, again, that's thanks to vaccination. But across the world, I think uh, when I look, last looked at the figures, more than 100,000 children worldwide die from measles right. every year. Right. It's still out and there. It's still out there. That's, plain right that's right. a staggering number. Right. It's huge. Right. It is huge. It's, it's a plane right away. You leave your kids unvaccinated, somebody comes into your community, and we've seen it happen, comes into a community with a pocket of unvaccinated kids. Well, they're all going to, most, 9 out of 10 kids in a room with somebody with measles is going to get sick. It's so contagious. Kids that have been vaccinated, like I said, 97% effective, which is amazing, 3% Uneffective, right? So, so there is a very, very small chance that vaccinated kids could get it and spread it. So you have all of these spreaders out there, these unvaccinated spreaders in a community, and it could really devastate a community. That's why we need to have a, a good big portion of the community vaccinated. And that's why we're not seeing, right now we have a good portion, but that's why we're not seeing these huge measles outbreaks. I mean, we, we might, we might if, you know, vaccine rates drop and it's very likely, you know, we'd see that if it does. And where we do see um, clusters of measles outbreaks, it's typically in the unvaccinated or undervaccinated communities. Right. where herd immunity has not been achieved in, in that area, even if the nation as a whole is quite close to achieving herd immunity for the wider population. Correct. Yeah. You need, a, you need your community, the majority of your community vaccinated in order to protect everybody from a disease. So really important. So on the subject of declining numbers 
Anti-vaxxers argue that most vaccine-preventable diseases were already in serious decline long before vaccines were invented for them. And they say this was thanks to improved sanitation and hygiene. And as a result of this, they say vaccines were neither necessary nor instrumental in the fight against those diseases. What does the evidence actually show? Well, here's the thing, sanitation, what does help in the spread, in, in stopping the spread of disease, right? Like we see with our masks and stuff right now, our good hand washing is helping keep our, our co the COVID-19 uh, disease incidents down. Um, the thing about it is sanitation, improvements in sanitation really you know coincided with our development of vaccines you know they're kind of parallel things are getting better as we're developing new technologies right so the thing about it is if you look at the at the data when a vaccine was developed and used in a community you see a drop in disease and it is you know you can see disease, vaccine drop in disease data doesn't lie right when a community stops vaccinating, you see an increase in disease. Well, there's been nothing changed in sanitation, right? I mean, today, and we can see that in numbers. When, when we're using vaccines, disease level goes down. And that's just data. And, you know, sanitation helps, that's for, for sure. But vaccines are really the reason why disease incidence has decreased. That's that's well said because, yeah, it, again, we've sort of seen some declines, but it's not until the vaccines come along that the really big changes, the really big drops are seen in, in the data. The death rate goes down a bit because we might have developed better ways to treat the disease or, or at least support uh, a child until they can fight off the disease. And some of the incidence rates have gone down because the spread of the diseases isn't so great because we've taken greater measures against the types of behaviours that spread it. But there are still no significant, no big, big changes until the disease, uh, until the vaccine comes along, at which point a disease can actually be virtually eliminated from a community, if, if not in an entire country. The, the example I like to look at is India, where there are still in many places across the nation, huge problems with sanitation mm. and hygiene due to lack of services or, or um, poverty and a whole range of, of confounding factors. And yet, thanks to the polio vaccine, I think their last wild polio case was in 2012. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Of wild polio free in a country where poor sanitation and hygiene is still a major problem for a disease that is typically spread by poor sanitation and hygiene. Correct. But the vaccines have, are there and they are providing the level of protection that sanitation and hygiene cannot provide by themselves. And that is the critical point. Right. And we've seen that. We saw that in Africa just declared uh, polio elimination, Africa region. So, you know, and there's, there's problems with sanitation there too. I mean, that just goes to show it's not sanitation. It's the vaccine that's working.
So the last anti-vax argument I want to look at is this issue of infants receiving antibodies from their mother's breast milk. Now, it is well established that infants do receive antibodies from, from their mother's breast milk, but anti-vaxxers argue that this means they don't need vaccination because they've already received all the antibodies required from their mother. Can you explain why they're wrong or, or at least or even if there are any merits to this argument? Yeah, so we do see antibodies pass from mother to baby, um, both in utero and through breast milk. But the antibodies that are passed from mom to baby are passive antibodies. That means they're, she's just passing antibodies. Baby is not making a memory to the disease. That means that the baby will not be able to keep making antibodies should it see the disease again after several months when those, pass, those passive antibodies have waned and they're gone. So it's important for, the, for babies to get those vaccines so that they are creating that lifelong um, or long-term immunity to those diseases that could potentially kill them. I mean, this is really important. Mother should you know, be getting their child the whooping cough vaccine. That's potentially deadly to babies. Um, she, cannot, she is not passing those antibodies uh, through breast milk to the baby. So, um, you know, it's really important to get, breast milk is, is great. It's offering a lot of good stuff to the baby. It's really important to get those vaccines for lifelong or long-term immunity. Yeah, thanks. I, I like the way you've, you've explained that. Um, I guess it's, it's a bit like when you first move out of home and maybe you don't like cooking or, or maybe you've never really learned to cook and your, your mum stops by and she drops off a whole bunch of meals for you to, to have during the week that, that she's cooked for you. And then by the end of the week, you've used up all those meals, but you don't know how to make any more. So you, <laughs> you've got to go out and buy some or go running back to mum again. It, it, it strikes me as the same sort of situation. The child has the antibodies, but it didn't produce them. It has no capacity to produce them. Its body doesn't know how to produce them. And so once their effectiveness wanes um, or, or they, they slowly die off, if antibodies die off, there is no way to replace them. And, and so that's precisely why vaccines are required, to train them how to, how to do it. Is that a fair analogy? No, that's good. I, <laughs> I love that analogy. That's really uh, near and dear to my life because I can't cook. So... <laughs> No, I think that's great. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, you got to learn to cook on your own. Your body's got to learn to, to, you know, form a memory to uh, a germ on its own, make your own, you know, antibodies. So you, those antibodies aren't going to last forever. You, you got to learn to cook. So just swinging briefly back to the autism vaccine argument, one of the reasons anti-vaxxers like to correlate the, these two is because they say, well, you know, autism symptoms almost invariably tend to be diagnosed around the same time as vaccination. You can't deny the correlation here. Now, 
correlation, of course, is not causation. Just because something happens around the same time does not mean it was caused by that thing. Otherwise, we'd be still relying on roosters to bring the sun up in the morning. And and roosters aren't even very good at, at, at getting that right either. Um, but what would you say to a parent who says, well, why does the emergence of autism symptoms often coincide with vaccination? Why does that happen in the first place? You know, it, it happened, like you said, it happens at, at about the age where they're getting that MMR vaccine. So it is just, it's coincidental. You know, we cannot show a link between autism and vaccines. The, this, what's come out recently, or maybe within the past decade even, is that they think that children are born with autism that there's a genetic factor there and maybe also an environmental factor. I mean, maybe I'm not in any way saying that I'm a, you know, a researcher of autism or a doctor, you know, that has a big knowledge in autism. I don't. Um, but, you know, the cause of autism, I think is still kind of up in the air. Environmental, genetic, maybe both. The thing about it is, it really does coincide with the, the same time children are getting that MMR vaccine. And like you said, correlation does not mean causation. And we're, we found, or scientists have found, that the MMR vaccine or all vaccines do not cause autism. So what, what you're saying is then the, the time at which autism symptoms become diagnosable, visibly diagnosable, is actually the, the same time that children are receiving certain vaccines, uh, such as the yeah. MMR. By that stage, I think they would have only received the first dose, wouldn't they? Not, not, the, not the even the second. dose at that time. Between 12 yeah. and, and um, 15 or 18 months. The second dose comes later between hmm. four and six kind of depending on where you're at. But, um, but yeah, that's about the, the time when autism's diagnosed and when they start to see symptoms. I mean, sometimes earlier, sometimes later, but I think that's the average. And I think that's why sometimes the MMR gets blamed for autism. Of course, we've got plenty of uh, control cases to show that this isn't true because there are so many anti-vax parents out there who haven't vaccinated their children at all or have skipped the MMR, for example, and their children have still been diagnosed with autism. So it's, it's getting increasingly difficult for them to maintain this myth because the longer the years go on with uh, the MMR being available, the more evidence is stacking up against the suggestion that it has anything to do with a causative connection to autism. It's, it's just every year there are just, there's more evidence against this. It just demonstrates what we already know. Right. And it's, but it's just, man, that paper that came out has really just put that in everybody's heads and it, it's just so hard to take back, you know? And I think hopefully as time goes on, that'll kind of, fade out but um you know it's it's hard to get away from that i think for anti-vaxxers and it's a really um easy thing to use to keep people from vaccinating 
This last question touches on uh, aspects of of the discussion we've had earlier. Some parents worry about the number of vaccines that their child receives at a young age. They they think that maybe the child's immune system will be overwhelmed because the immune system hasn't fully developed yet and it doesn't know how to deal with the antigens presented by these vaccines. So how would you respond to a parent with those concerns? Well, babies do have immature immune systems. I'm, you know, you can't really debate that. That's it's definitely more immature than than a um, an adult person. However, babies don't live in a bubble. Our children don't live in a bubble. It's not like a completely sterile environment. Even from when they first come out of the womb, they're exposed to so many different bacteria, and you know, and they're exposed to viruses all the time their bodies can handle this stuff. And it's sometimes you don't even know they're sick. You don't even know they've been infected. Bodies just take care of it. When we get exposed to vaccine germs, it's the, the germ, the antigen is such a small amount that our body can easily take care of it. A baby's body can easily take care of it. I mean, sometimes we see a fever, right? But all those vaccines together have been tested to make sure they're safe, make sure they're effective, make sure that all of the vaccines used together at one time, um, there's no effect on one or another. The schedule is made in such a way that, that it's always monitored for safety, effectiveness, you know, to, to make sure that it's working. It's important to follow that schedule because this is, it works very well and it's, there's great data on our schedules. Following any sort of alternative schedule because you're worried about overwhelming your baby's immune system is not recommended because those schedules have not been tested. So you just need to know that the immune system is amazing. It's great at taking care of most things that it encounters every single day without you even knowing about it. It takes care of vaccine germs without you even knowing about it. It's this, it, it's not, you're not going to overwhelm a healthy child's immune system with vaccines. Thanks, that's, that's really good and nicely put. The key issue then is that the the amount of antigens and the, and the types of antigens presented to a young child are never enough to overwhelm the immune system because they, they've been carefully calculated and determined and tested repeatedly, uh, re repeatedly by scientific research. And of course, the very schedule itself exists for that reason, to make sure that vaccines are sensibly spaced out so that the, the body has time to react to them, develop its own antibodies, learn how to combat these diseases on its own, and then in time it's ready for the next set of vaccines where it can go through the process all over again. Yeah, correct. Well, Taryn, you've been really great to talk to. I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion. If people want to follow your work, where can they find you online? Um, they can find me at thevaccinemom.com, where I have my whole collection of questions, answers, cool articles that I think y'all would enjoy. 
I'm on social media. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the vaccine mom or Facebook, uh, the vaccine mom one. So please join me. I, I do my best to, to put out creative and fun information, cool stories. Um, you know, I want to make it fun for the readers. So, um, yeah, I'd love to. I, I had so much fun talking to you. This is a great interview. Thank you very much again. It's, it's been a real pleasure.